This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to our latest property patter, looking at the remedy of damages. I'm joined today by Sam Lear of our real estate disputes team and Hannah Gornall of our commercial dispute resolution team. Sam, remedies are perhaps the main thing on a client's mind when they start litigation, um, i.e. what they can hope to recover or win. Um, In a nutshell, what are damages? Hi, Emma. So the term damages refers to any amount of money awarded by a court in order to compensate a claimant who has suffered loss or damage as a result of a wrong for which the defendant is responsible. So to put it rather simplistically, and there's a lot of nuance to consider, um, that this tends to come by two strands as a contractual strand and the tort strand. So Generally speaking, contractual cases, it's to put the claimants in the same position with respect to damages as if the contract had been performed. So to use a property example, if a tenant hasn't paid rent under a commercial lease, then the landlord could expect to recover rent by way of damages. Uh, For torts, it's to put the claimants in as nearly as possible in the same position as as they would have been if the tort had not been committed. So to use a similar example, if a trespasser comes uh, onto your land and uses a parking space for which you don't have a benefit, then you could be entitled to damages or the loss of utility. Um, But tort claims tend to have various hurdles that you have to overcome. Uh, You have to establish a duty, a breach, causation, remoteness, loss and mitigation. Um, And we'll probably go on to talk about that Um, in a minute. But the critical first step is to identify the loss. What do clients expect when it comes to damages? Uh, What are some of the common misconceptions? So um, I think the first thing that tends to come to mind for clients in in respect of damages tends to be um, damages to, to recompense them for financial losses. So if there's been a breach of a contract and they've suffered some loss, then they may, um, the first thing they think of is obviously getting recompensed for that. There are also a whole range of other damages claims that clients can bring um, in respect of non-monetary loss. Um, So just to give a few examples of this, um, they could bring a claim for loss of opportunity, um, which is also could be known as a loss of chance claim. A client can also bring a claim for damages arising from pain and suffering. These kind of claims tend to be uh, most closely associated with personal injury claims. A client could also bring a claim for um, social discredit. So if their reputation has been damaged, they could bring a a damages claim um, for defamation. Um, And in very limited circumstances, which I'm sure we'll come on to later, clients can also bring um, damages claims for mental distress that they've suffered, Um, although this is quite rare. um, But but yet there are there are plenty of different um, different heads of of claim that um, a client can bring a damages claim for. So just moving on to to common misconceptions, really, I think that that's quite an important one, is that when most people think about um, receiving damages, their first thought is that an award of damages is designed to punish the defendant, um, whereas actually in English law, the purpose of an award of damages is to compensate the injured party for loss rather than punish the wrongdoer. So the compensation um, is is the the forefront, really, of an award of damages. Um, So I think as Sam just touched upon, the general rule is that damages should either place the claimant in the same position they would have been had the contract been performed, or if they, it would put the claimant back in the position they would have been if 
if the wrong had not been committed. Um, so whilst it is possible to bring what's known as retributory damages, um, which are damages for, for punishing the defendant, this is very exceptional um, and rarely awarded. Um, so, it, you know, in terms of bringing a damage claim, it's not really appropriate to add in a claim for retributory damages, just to mark how upset a claimant is at the defendant's conduct. So that's just kind of a general principle. Um, and then moving on to causation and remoteness. So clients um, often seek to bring a damages claim, but they don't appreciate sometimes that there are a series of legal hurdles that they have to overcome. So, for example, um, again, I think Sam touched upon this. Um, in order to bring a successful claim, you have to prove causation. So that is um, whether the damage resulted from a breach, a breach of duty, a breach of contract, um, and also remoteness, um, which is whether the damage is foreseeable. Um, and then lastly, um, another important point to mention is mitigation. So lots of clients are not aware that actually they are under duty to what we call mitigate their losses. Um, so the rule of mitigation requires a claimant to take steps to minimise its losses and avoid taking unreasonable steps that increase costs. Um, so an injured party cannot recover damages for any loss, which could have been avoided by taking reasonable steps. Um, and what's reasonable comes down to a matter of fact. Yes, Hannah, on the subject of mitigation, that is a particularly interesting one. Uh, and clients often don't expect to have to mitigate their losses. They, they, they're in a position where they've you know, incurred a loss, they want to sue straight away, and uh, often willing to spend quite a lot more, which potentially exacerbates the losses that they've already suffered and expect to be able to recover those in full from the wrongdoing party, um, whereas actually there's quite an onerous duty on, on any claimant, particularly in professional negligence, uh, to ensure that they uh, minimise their losses as far as possible. And that could often lead to some short-term sort of pain for, for the claiming party. Yeah, certainly can. And in both contract and tort, I mean, you mentioned there, you know, we've got causation and remoteness as well. How does that work in practice? What sort of things does the court think about there? So thanks, Emma. Yeah, just to touch on the general principles there. So in both tort and contract, the claimant has to show that the defendant's actions caused the actual loss or damage. Causation arguments are, are very relevant to the assessment of damages. Um, and there are two aspects to consider that um, seem to operate in combination. So the first aspect is what we call the factual element. So the question to ask is, did the damage result from the breach of duty? The second aspect is the, what we call the legal test. So that is even where the loss or damage has been caused um, by the defendant's breach of duty, should the defendant be held responsible for the consequence of its breach? And this is what we call the remoteness of damage test. So this um, means that the damage must be of a foreseeable type. So in, in negligence claims, for example, once the, the claimant has established that the defendant owes the duty of care and is a breach of that duty, they have also got to demonstrate that the damage was not too remote. And I think it's sometimes easier to demonstrate the court's approach with these things through perhaps case examples rather than um, legal explanations. Um, perhaps each of you could give me a favourite damages case to show how there can sometimes be unexpected outcomes before the court. Um, Sam, do you want to go first? Sure. Yes. So I, I'm not really one for memorising uh, case law from, uh, from my law school days, but what I do remember is known as the swimming pool case, which is Ruxley and Forsyth. Uh, so Ruxley agreed to build a swimming pool at Forsyth's home and the contract specified the depth of the pool was to be uh, seven feet, six inches. 
However, Ruxley completed the ball to a depth of six feet, nine inches. And Ruxley brought an action for breach of contracts, claiming the cost of rebuilding the pool to the specified depth um, in accordance with the general principle that he should be in the same position as if the contracts had been properly performed. Um, and it was estimated that the cost of rebuilding the pool entirely was 21 and a half thousand pounds, more or less. Uh, Ruxley argued that the pool was still safe for diving despite the breach and Forsyth had not therefore suffered any damage in terms of um, any losses to the value of his home. Um, further, Forsyth was actually quite blatant in saying that he had no intention to rebuild the pool at all, but he argued that this is of no relevance given the general principle above. But Ruxley's view was because there had been no real diminution in value to the value of the property, Forsyth had not really suffered any loss. Uh, so the compensatory nature of contractual damages, the court might have awarded uh, full scythe the, uh, the full cost of the cure, in other words, to rebuild the swimming pool to the specification requested, or taken the diminution in value approach, which is that uh, which Ruxley argued for, uh, where the value would be nil because there had been no real loss to, to Forsyth. But a kind of halfway house was found in this case and reflected uh, what has become known as loss of amenity. So the court held, uh, and then it was the House of Lords, um, held that it would be wholly unreasonable and disproportionate to the loss Forsyth had suffered in not having the pool at his desired depth. Therefore, Forsyth could not recover the cost of rebuilding because this would be totally out of proportion to the loss he had actually suffered. Instead, the court awarded damages of two and a half thousand pounds, so you know, just over 10% of, of the claim for loss of immunity. Uh, but they did make the quite important point that contractual terms and specifications are important, um, which perhaps explains why they didn't go for the diminution in value approach. Um, because otherwise, um, it, you know, such terms become of little relevance as far as enforcement is concerned. So therefore, the court took a rather and perhaps inherently subjective approach in making an award that better reflected the upset that the loss of immunity had caused. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it, Ruxley and Forsyth? And um, I suspect the court also felt it had slightly better things to do with its time than hear about the depth of a swimming pool. But anyway, <laughs> um, and Hannah, what about you? Um, have you got a, a, a useful case for illustrating uh, damages in action? Well, thanks very much, Amber. Yeah, as Sam said, you know, that's known as a swimming pool case. I also um, remember a case from law school, which we call the, the aeroplane case, which is the case of, of Farley and Skinner. And this case was to do with, um, as I touched upon earlier in the podcast, um, the, the, the very kind of unique situation in which you can be awarded damages for distress and inconvenience. So, as I, as I mentioned earlier, in the tort of negligence, the mental distress is not by itself sufficient to bring a successful damages claim. However, this case is, is often seen as the exception to the rule. So just by way of background, um, the defendant in this case was a surveyor. He was instructed by the claimant to inspect a country house, um, and he was specifically asked to investigate whether the house would be affected by aircraft noise. So he negligently failed to do this, and the buyer moved into the property and found that, unfortunately, the property was underneath a flight path. So his enjoyment of the property was hugely affected by the sound of the aeroplanes flying overhead. But interestingly enough, even though obviously the property was deeply affected by the aircraft noise, the amount of noise did not actually affect the value of the property at all. 
So he took the defendant to court and the House of Lords held that this is one of the very exceptional cases in which where an important object of a contract is to expressly provide pleasure, the defendant was in this case liable to pay damages, which were assessed at £10,000, just the fact that the purchaser had suffered exactly the kind of displeasure he had actively sought to avoid. So I think that's just quite an interesting example, really, of how the court can apply its discretion and consider all the facts of the case, really, when when it, when um, assessing damages. Yes, definitely. Um, and I have to say, one of my favourite cases, or perhaps least favourite cases, but it's certainly a warning case, um, an interesting case uh, in the landlord and tenant context is design progression and Thurlow, uh, which was back in 2004. And in that case, you know, we've said earlier about damages being to, you know, restore the other sides of the, you know, the claimant to the position they should have been in and that sort of thing. And it's not a punishment, but of course there is the ability for the court in certain circumstances to award exemplary damages. Um, and in, that's exactly what happened in design progression and Thurlow, which is a bit of a wake up call for landlords and tenants, because um, perhaps something we're not as used to in our field. Um, and in that case, the high court awarded the tenant uh, exemplary damages of £25,000 because it found that the landlord had um, sort of behaved quite cynically and, and been deliberately delaying the grant of a licence to assign to try to stop the tenant from assigning its lease. Um, so that was a really interesting case. Uh, I mean, exemplary damages are, you know, they are rare. Um, uh, I don't want everyone listening thinking they're suddenly entitled to penalty damages. That's it's not the case at all. But um, you know where you do have unacceptable behaviour on the defendant's part, um, and it's behaviour that the court feels merits punishment. Um, uh, you know where the defendant's calculating. You know that actually can take the risk because the profit will out you know outweigh the compensation, things like that. Um, they, then you start getting into the realms of exemplary damages. Anyway, I'm sure we can cover that in another podcast another time, but. Um, uh, they're all good examples of how um, perhaps the courts don't always take the approach um, calculated by the parties, expected by the parties um, uh, when it comes to damages. Um, so thank you very much to you both. Um, that's been a useful um, canter through what damages mean uh, in principle and in practice. Uh, and hopefully our listeners have found that useful. Have a great day. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. podcast.